0: Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning seeking encouragement and seeking a reminder of your gospel message. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would come, that it would fill this place. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me this morning. And I pray, God, that your spirit would create open hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to speak to uh, to each each of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to just start this morning by saying that I think that um, a big problem that exists in the church and that exists in the world today is that we have a tendency to put certain people on a, on a pedestal, on a kind of spiritual pedestal. And we look at people, maybe it's pastors, maybe it's a famous YouTube preacher or Uh, Maybe it's a a parent. You had a really godly parent, and that person really made a strong impression on you. Uh, Perhaps it's a spouse. I think there's a lot of guys even that, you know, they look at their wives and they think, wow, my wife is so filled with the Spirit. such a lovely... Hopefully, you husbands think this, but she's such a lovely, God-fearing, kind person, and I could never really be like that. There's no way that I could ever see God moving in my life and doing the kind of things for me that I see God doing in the lives of other people. And so I think that there's a lot of folks out there that are maybe what we would call back row Christians, and they're the folks that come to church, but they sit on the back row. So I am not singling you guys out today. We're speaking metaphorically. Evan, you got the baby. I totally understand. You're on the back row for a reason. But the kind of, the kind of back row Christians, they're, they're on the sidelines. And you're, you're seeing what's happening up front. And you're seeing God move powerfully in the lives of people. But you're like, yeah, I just, I don't know if that's for me. I don't know if I'm worthy enough for that. I don't know if God could ever do those kind of incredible things for me. Today and so I I believe that this story of Mark two of the the paralyzed man coming to Jesus with such boldness is exactly a story for you to encourage you and God wants to say you don't need to stay on the back row whatever your insecurities are whatever it is that you think you've done that somehow makes you unworthy to be able to experience the power of God in your life to experience the transformation that the gospel offers these things are available for you. They're available for the unworthy. So no matter what your history is, no matter what your problem is, no matter how many tattoos you have, no matter how broken your life may seem, there is nothing that excludes you from having the spirituality of a Tim Keller or a Bill Johnson or a Pastor John or anybody like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is nothing preventing you from coming forward except your own fear and your own doubt, your own insecurity. And so this is a passage is about a guy who, though he is unworthy, is willing to get past that and show a little boldness and courage and barge right in. Okay? That's what this is about. And then we're going to see kind of what the repercussions of that are. So... What is happening in this story? Let me just recap chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So Jesus has previously been in the region of Capernaum, and that is why, having already been there, having performed many miraculous signs, the people have swarmed around him. Everybody has heard what Jesus can do, and so he is completely mobbed, is completely inaccessible, is in a person's home, and everybody is crowded around to be be with him, to, to receive what he has. So he's completely inaccessible at this point of time to quote-unquote normal people, okay? So many got ga- so many gathered there that there was no room left. I think we can picture if it's a rabbi teacher in typical Jewish fashion of the day, that he would be standing. All the disciples and people that would be gathered around him are sit- seated at his feet. It's standing room only. So there is absolutely no room. I mean, people are just crowding in there. They have as many people, like sardines in a can, as many people People can pack into this room or packed in there to hear Jesus speak and to see him. So, some men came bringing to him a paralytic car- carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat uh, the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith. Now, I just I want to stop right there. And can we just imagine what kind of crazy guys these are that would do something so crazy like this, so bold and audacious? Uh, One of the great things about living in New York is you meet a lot of Jewish people and you pick up on some Yiddish words at various times. But how many of you know uh, the word chutzpah? You, you guys are familiar with that word? The New Yorkers in the room are like, yeah, we know what chutzpah is. Because chutzpah is like the Chinese grandmas in, in Chinatown. That will knock you right over, even though they're schlepping. Another good Yiddish word. They're schlepping like a humongous, a humongous bag of stuff going up the stairs. No person that age should be doing that, but they're doing it. Why? Because they have chutzpah. Because they are not afraid to knock you over, so you better be careful. Right? That's what happens on Grand Street. But see, that th- these guys have chutzpah they have incredible audacity. So for those of you that don't know that word, right, chutzpah means a kind of shameless audacity, kind of boldness, uh, a kind of confidence um, that they are going to break for nobody. We're not going to stop at anything. And you just imagine these guys, you know, what kind of guys are these? Um, The commentary does not say this, but this is my guess, like, like four guys that got nothing better to do during the day than to carry their paralytic friend around. They're probably young. They're probably unemployed. I don't think these are upper middle class fine gentlemen. I think these are street kind of guys, right? These are dudes that are hanging out and they have nothing better to do than to be helping their friend today. But but these are guys that are not going to be, they don't give up easily. So they're very smart. They're very determined and they are not going to stand on ceremony. They're, they're not going to allow the piety of the whole Jewish scene at the time to keep them away from Jesus. They are going to do whatever it takes to get this guy in front of Jesus. And you can imagine, you know, I I don't know what they're thinking, but they go up on the roof and they're like, well, we'll we'll just dig a hole in this guy's roof. And one of them is like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So then they start, uh, they start digging a roof and then, you know, really, the whole roof could have caved in, so that's just such a humongous risk that they're taking, such a dangerous thing to be doing, and yet that's their faith at work. That's the chutzpah. It is like we're even though we may not be deserving, even though we may not be the quote-unquote religious type that society loves, like we are going to get this guy to Jesus no matter what it takes, and if that means that we have to make a complete fool of ourselves and we got to just we got to just show up, we got to dig a hole through this guy's roof, we've got to risk gaving in on anybody, and for sure we're going to basically lower this guy. Uh, on the heads of all the faithful, you know, Pharisees and disciples that are at the feet of Jesus. They're like, that's fine. Let's just do it. Do what we got to do. Right. And then it says when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith. And so I think the point here is that like Jesus is doing all these miracles. He's doing these incredible things as we're going through chapters one and two of Mark. But the question is, how do you access that? How do you enter into that? You enter into it through faith. Faith is the way that you get access to the grace of God, to the power of God that's going to bring transformation to your life, that's going to change you into a person who could impact the world. And what is faith? It is shameless audacity. Faith is chutzpah. Faith is saying, I don't care what I look like. I don't care what kind of baggage I have. I don't care what things might be in my past. We need to get to Jesus And we are going to do whatever it takes to be able to get there. This idea that there is an inner circle and that there are certain people that are holier than others and more religious and that they get dibs on Jesus. I think Mark is making, the author of this gospel is making a very clear statement about who the heroes are. It is not the bougie upper middle class folks who have their act together who are in charge that get access to Jesus, it is the people like these street kids with their friend, with their chutzpah, who will stop at nothing to get to Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith. My friends, that is faith. For those of you who are back row Christians, and, and you're, you're in the shadows, you're, you're looking at God do amazing things in other people's lives, but you're thinking, oh, I don't know if God could do that for me. Mark is saying, and God is saying, no, he can. It is for you. It's for you. It's not just for your wife. It's not just for your really godly parent. It's not just for Pastor John. I don't say Pastor Ben because I don't think that you guys think I'm that holy. But it's not for Tim Keller, this famous pastor we all really admire in him. But it's for you. It's for you. And all it takes is that bold courage God says, don't don't hold back. Don't be ashamed. Come. Come. Come with your unworthiness. Come Come with your sense of being undeserving and break a hole in the roof. Show up to God. Don't let anything stop you. Come forward. Come forward and receive what God wants to give you. That's faith. That's faith. Is is I don't deserve this, but I am going to tear down this wall. I'm going to pound on the gates of heaven until I get an answer. Until I get what God, what I need God to do for me. That is faith. That is what Mark is commending for us. I think that a lot of us, we hold back from what God is calling us to do because we feel unworthy. Um, it was crazy just this week. So I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking, I'm praying about these things, and I, and I had a conversation with my wife, and some of you know that I'm involved with this thing called the Nehemiah Project. But the Nehemiah Project is something, it's not just City Grace, it's, I, I'm leading this initiative with like 40 churches on the East Coast between here and D.C., and I'm very overwhelmed by it at times, which I'm sure you can tell if I look stressed out, it's because I have things on my mind. But I, I was thinking with Christy about, you know, what is it these churches need to hear? Like, what is, the, what, is, what is really going on in these churches? I'm trying to encourage them. I'm trying to build them up. What do they need to hear? And we were thinking about that, and I had a deep sense of insecurity. And my insecurity was, am I really qualified to be able to get up in front of these churches and do what I need to do and say what needs to be said? And you see, my, it was my own insecurity that was keeping me from stepping into this work that God wants to do through me. If God says to me, Ben, I have a calling for you, I have a mission for you, and this is what I want you to do, and I I want to use you in order to accomplish my purpose in the world or my purpose in the church, if that really is the case, if the call of God is on your life, then who are you to say to God, sorry, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm really not holy enough to do what you're asking me to do. I'm really not worthy enough, right? That's crazy. That's crazy because do I really think that it's me that's gonna be doing the work? Or do I believe that if God's called me, that he wants to use my mouth and he wants to use my actions? He wants to use me to accomplish his purposes, not my purposes. So if that's really the case, then what difference does it make how I feel about it? If God wants to use me to do what God wants to do, then I should trust that God knows what he's doing with me and that I will be okay. And I can just be obedient and not be overly concerned about whether I'm quote unquote worthy enough. You see, if the guy in the story had looked at his life and looked at himself and he's a paralyzed person head to toe in that day and time, by the way, if you suffer from this kind of a a disease, people will assume that there's something the matter with you and that you did something sinful in order to deserve to be in that condition. So can you imagine the kind of shame and the kind of guilt that this guy feels? And yet, if he had let that, and if his friends had let that prevent him from coming to Jesus, then he wouldn't experience something incredible, something life-changing, and something that I believe in this passage. Actually, I'll share in a minute here. Changes the course of Western civilization. By the way, listen. Mark Batterson, famous uh, pastor in Washington D.C., said something really profound. God doesn't call the qualified; He qualifies the called. He qualifies the called. So who are you? Who am I with my insecurities, with my feeling of unworthiness to say, ah, God, sorry, you got the wrong guy. I don't know if I can do what you want me to do. Because if God says I want to use you to accomplish this, then that's his will and he's sovereign. And my job is not to say, God, sorry, you picked the wrong guy. I'm disqualified because of my sin, but rather to let God take care of that to let God take care of my sin, to let God take care of my unworthiness in the way that he wants, in the timing that he wants, so that I can get on with the business of doing what God wants me to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody nod and say yes, please. Yes? Okay. Okay, I don't want to beat a dead horse. So if I need to, to move on here, then, then, I'll, then I'll move on, right? The gospel is for the undeserving. We need to... Take the bougie out of Christianity. It is for street people. It is for prostitutes. It is for tax collectors. It is for people recovering from addiction. The gospel is for normal, broken people. These are the ones, the lost, that God says, Jesus says, come. Come and receive love, receive forgiveness. It is not for people that think they have it all together. It is for people who know that they desperately Need something. So back row Christians, be encouraged. What God has is for you. It's waiting. He's waiting. All right? So point number two then, what exactly is on the other side? If we're willing to, to, to get that chutzpah, to take that risk, what, is, what comes to us? So Jesus, at this point, does something completely, completely shocking. So the man has been lowered to the ground people are scrambling out of the way in order to get out of the way so the person doesn't land on their head. Why is the man there? What did he come for? He clearly claimed for one purpose because he wanted to be physically healed, right? That's why they brought him. But the interesting thing is that Jesus does not at first heal him. He does something else. And I want to suggest to you that what actually Jesus does changes the course of Western civilization. This is a nuclear bomb. Jesus sets off a nuclear bomb, okay? Okay. What is the nuclear bomb? In verse chapter 5, finish the verse, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, son, son, your sins are forgiven. So this is an incredible thing. And it actually, actually, this is far more significant than physical healing, but the physical healing will come too, because the two are intimately connected. This is far more significant. The greatest problem that exists in... Life in humanity, in history, is, in fact sin. It is not physical illness, it is not sickness, it is not even death. These are all the manifestations of sin. They are the repercussions of sin. It is sin writ large. And so sin is a word that maybe in our day and society, uh, we don't really know what sin is, because we, don't, uh, it, we just don't talk about it that much. What is sin? Sin is the sin, the, the tendency. That all of us carry around in our hearts and in our flesh and in our bodies to hurt others. To want to do more for ourselves than we want to do for other people. Sin is that tendency that we always want to be right. Sin is wanting to get even and not let people off the hook when they wrong us. Sin is pride. Sin is thinking that our own people are better than others and wanting to do more for our own and take care of our own rather than to care for the lost and the hurting and the poor. Sin is anxiety. Sin is selfishness. Sin is hatred. But the problem with sin, really the essence of sin, is that our sin and humanity's sin drives an incredible, incredible wedge between us and God. So sin, the problem with sin is it disconnects us from God. It separates us from God. And according to scripture, relationship with God is life. And so if that is true, if our life is in God, if our life is in worship, if our life is in relationship and fellowship with God, and sin drives a a wedge in our relationship with God, then what sin does eventually brings death. And the scripture teaches that the full-blown effects of sin are death. So when you think about it from that perspective, and Jesus drops this nuclear explosion, where is the nuclear explosion that's going to change the world? He tells the man that his sins are forgiven. Can you imagine how incredible that is, to completely have your sins forgiven? I want you to imagine that, that you, I was going to call upon one of you right now. I'm not going to do it. But I, I imagine that I would want to call upon one of you right now to come forward and to lay bare your entire life in front of this room. And I want you to imagine that we could go through every single website that you've ever visited, and you could be standing right here in front of this whole room of people, and you had not an ounce of shame or embarrassment about a single website you'd ever been to. And I want you to imagine here that you came up and we could show like a YouTube video of your life, especially when you're alone and when you're in your room or things that you you thought people didn't do. And we just play that life reel in front of everybody. But your life was so perfect and you never did anything you regretted. You never had a moment where you sinned or made any kind of a mistake such that you could get up here And be completely okay with the entire world knowing every detail of your life. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Can you imagine that you could come up in front here and be so comfortable in your own skin? That you have absolutely no qualms whatsoever. What anybody thinks about you because you are so okay with you. That you are so content and so at peace with yourself. That you have nothing to hide. You have nothing you're ashamed of. You have nothing that you've ever done that you regret. Can you imagine how awesome that would feel to be able to just, you know, basically be completely naked in front of everybody, and yet you're fine because you have nothing to hide, right? That's a, it's kind of absurd, but I'm here to tell you this morning that that is what the forgiveness of sins accomplishes. That is how profound, when God forgives your sins, it's past, present, and future, and what it means is that there's nothing at all that is left on your on your slate. Your slate is completely clean. It means that you have nothing to be embarrassed about. It leaves no room for shame, no room for regret, no room for for looking back on, on back on past mistakes and you know all the time I'm 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 a uh, in prayer and in, in just in life, I'm reminded of things I've done, especially stupid things, like really stupid things that I did when I was a kid and when I did in, in New York even, you know. And, and I wish that I could, I could take back things I've said. I could undo mistakes I've made. But the thing is, when God brings forgiveness, like true forgiveness of sins into your life, it, it leaves no shame, no guilt It completely erases in the eyes of God, which is the most important. It completely erases every bad thing, every sinful thing you've ever done in your entire life. It changes your life. But most importantly, what the forgiveness of sins does is it presents you before God as somebody who has nothing to be afraid of and nothing to be ashamed of. Which means that the forgiveness of sins, sorry BJ, you got to go get that door again. This is why BJ needs help, by the way, to be on his team. Because he spends all the sermon uh, getting the door. So if you want to be on the uh, welcome team, he would appreciate it. The forgiveness of the sins. This is the most important thing, right? What did we talk about sin doing? It drove a wedge between us and our relationship with God. The forgiveness of sins takes the wedge out, heals the broken relationship. And what does that mean? It means you will not die. You have eternal life. You have eternal life. You will live forever in worship in the presence of the holy and majestic God. That is the forgiveness of sins. You see... You see why the the Pharisees are like really they're like doubly offended. Number one, how could this guy offer that kind of forgiveness? Who does who does he think he is? And number two, why would you want to just give that to somebody so easily? They just showed up. They broke through this guy's roof. And you're just gonna forgive his sins? But that's that's the that's grace. This is why. The gospel is so powerful. So I think I'll close with saying, you know, just asking the question, how is it possible that Jesus could do this? All right, verse 6. Now that some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So I've already said that the forgiveness of sins the radical transforming of a person's life of completely removing everything that they've ever, every sin they've ever committed, everything they have to be guilty and ashamed about. That in itself is a, is a majestic and wonderful and amazing thing. It is, in fact, more impressive than physically healing them. But Jesus, he realizes kind of where they're at. And so he's going to take the physical healing and the spiritual healing. He's going to bring them together like they, they belong together. And so he says, let me show you that I, in fact, do have the right And have the ability to be able to forgive this guy's sins. Because watch what I'm going to do now. So verses 8 and following. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, dot, dot, dot. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat. This is not a very fancy, fancy healing. Jesus is very matter-of-fact about it. Man, get up, get your stuff, get out of here, and go home. You're good. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So true. So true. So how does God do this? How does God accomplish this? Uh, in the Muslim faith, I was talking to, to a Muslim person recently and I asked them, how does God forgive sins? And they said, well, God's all merciful. So God can just forgive sins. He can forgive whoever he wants. He doesn't have to do anything. He can just say they're forgiven and then they're forgiven because God is all merciful. But God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. And so the fact is that sin against God incurs a penalty. And God does love us. And God is merciful. But the way that God shows his mercy is not by pretending like nothing happened, but rather by being willing to pay the cost himself. And so that is why Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, he's giving forgiveness everywhere he goes. He's, He's bringing new life to people. But he does so at great cost to himself because eventually... He will have to give his life on the cross for us. And this is the meaning of the cross. The meaning of the cross is the great exchange is happening. On the cross, Jesus is taking our sin and the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God, because we've offended the holiness and righteousness of God. He's taking it on his own shoulders and suffering as an atoning or paying sacrifice for us. This forgiveness comes to us as a free gift, It's free to us, but it was not free for Christ. He himself has to give his own life to make this possible. He lets us off the hook for our sins by putting himself on the hook on our behalf. And that is why the love of God is a truly amazing thing. Because he doesn't just say, oh, your sins are canceled. You're fine. I'm merciful. But rather he says, no, your sin is serious. Your sin brought devastation, havoc into the world. Your sin brought death but I'm going to take that on myself so that you can be set free. And this is the ultimate act of God in completely setting us free in the truest sense of the word. John chapter 1, is on the screen. John chapter 10, verses 10 through 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, back row Christians out there, people who are on the sidelines, you're waiting. You're not sure if you're worthy. You think you got to be pious. You think you have to have your act together before you can come here and receive what God wants to give you. It is not the case. He says, "Come. Come to me all who you who are weary and, bur- and burdened and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Receive the love the forgiveness, the new life that God gives you. It's free for you. It came at great cost to God. But he needs you to show a little chutzpah, to take that risk, to take that leap of faith, and for goodness sake, come and break a hole in the roof. Okay? That's really what it takes. You got to break a hole in the roof. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to celebrate the gift of your of your body and your blood which you have um, given to us on the cross, and we remember this through communion. We pray that each one of us may have a new encounter of you, a new experience of your love, and that we would, whatever it is that's been holding us back, whatever it is that's been keeping us away from you, that we would just be willing to let go of those things and not allow our own insecurities from coming and breaking a hole in the roof, coming before you in courage, Lord, we know that you welcome the outcast. You welcome the sinner. You welcome the tax collector. You welcome the prostitute. You welcome all, Lord. That is why you have come, to save the lost. You are the one who leaves the 99 in search of the one. Lord, help us to embody this. Help us to respond to it. Help us to live it. Help us to share it. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.